Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. CDT. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Brian Wozolowski, and it's time to talk tech. Today's guest on Tech Talk is Susan Landau, an esteemed technologist, inductee in the Cybersecurity Hall of Fame, and the author of a new book, Listening In, Cybersecurity in an Insecure Age. Welcome, Susan. Thanks very much for having me. It's our pleasure. So tell me about this book. What prompted you to write it? So uh, in uh, February 2016, I was invited to testify in the House Judiciary Committee, and that turned out to be the time that the Apple FBI case was heating up, and we ended up testifying and talking about unlocking phones, secure phones, authenticating phones. And I argued very strongly during the testimony that what the FBI was seeking would actually create greater insecurity and would be very problematic. I found myself being asked to do a number of talks and to interview, and as we say in the field, that didn't scale. There's only so many places I could (laughs) go. And I decided the best thing to do was write a book, and so I did. So for folks, this is, you know, you've written books before. This is kind of a different book for you. It's meant for kind of a more general public. Why did you do that? And, and what do you, who do you hope reads it? Um, so perhaps it sounds a little snobbish. I was thinking of the NPR New York Times reading public. <laughs> and you got Tech Talk, which is not bad. So. <laughs> and I got Tech Talk. Um, what, I, uh, what I wanted to do was spread these ideas past the policy wonks and the tech geeks. And so I tried to read reach people who are interested in scientific, technological issues, uh, who are interested in public policy issues, but who are n- don't have expertise anywhere. The same people who would uh, read a book by uh, Stephen Jay Gould or you know one of one or Lewis Thomas. I realize I'm mentioning old-fashioned science engineering <laughs> writers, but Henry Petrovsky. But it's 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 that audience. That's great. So you kind of you brought up Apple. Obviously, that's what prompted it. Kind of, I think, made crypto and encryption in general a little bit more mainstream. People started to ask what that is. Um, where do you think we're going in the crypto debates? You were part of, you know, what they used to call the crypto wars of the '90s and early 2000s, and then Apple brought it back to the mainstream. Where are we right now in kind of the crypto debate? We've been in the same place for a few years. Apple, and then. Um, Google followed with Android. Apple started securing phones, and they did that because criminals were finding ways to hack data off phones and then commit other crimes. So Apple thought as a security measure, it should protect the data on the phones and make them more secure. And the way to do that was to make them harder to unlock. Uh, Law enforcement, which had grown very accustomed to being able to pull data off of phones for evidentiary purposes, is very unhappy. And we're at this unresolved situation. We've been that pla- in that place for almost four years now. Uh, it's hard to know where we're going. We've seen different kinds of attacks, including the Russian attacks, that argue for much better authentication. And the phones serve as great authenticators, as sec- great second-factor authenticators. And that argues that the phones are really good for security. Keeping the phones secure is really good for security generally. So I would say we're currently at an impasse. Well, you do a wonderful job of, you did a great talk here at CDT uh, with some folks, and you do a great job of really turning it from privacy versus security to security versus security, which I think is the point that you just made there, and also said that the end goal of all of this is to have easy to use, easy to access default encryption for all. Why is that so important? When you make encryption hard to use, people don't use it. 
when it is the uh, when it's not easily accessible when they have to search for it, whether it's a Tor browser or some other way of protecting themselves, they don't do it. But when you make it the default, it's what people use. Now, of course, making it the default makes it much harder for law enforcement because now everything is encrypted and now every phone is locked. Uh, what one has to do is take a step back and look at what are the threats to society. In the case of locked phones, the threats to society are increasing amounts of online theft, um, increasing amounts of access to online accounts and so on. And having a second factor to use as you authenticate yourself to an account, something past your password, is really important. The phones are something we all carry with us. The phones are something that uh, we will notice if it's stolen. And so it's a, a particularly good form of authentication, but only if the phone itself is secure. You also made um, an interesting point in the talk about two-factor or multi-factor, second-factor, um, and how SMS is insecure. Why is that? I mean, I'm someone who, you know, has been taught use two-factor, and I use SMS typically as my second factor. Why should I be a little worried about that? Well, it depends who you are. Okay. If you're somebody that's high-profile. I'm like, not. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> or you have a large Bitcoin account and people know about it. No. <laughs> um, then, then, then SMS doesn't work so well because criminals have gotten really good at calling the phone company, claiming their phone got lost, their phone got stolen, they need to move the number to a different device. And then they're the ones who have, if they've stolen your password, they then receive the SMS text on their device, move those bitcoins, or tweet on your account. Um, because now they have the authentication. Whereas if you instead use a, a piece of software, it might be from this company Duo in Michigan, it might be Authy, it might be uh, Google Authenticator, but if it's software on your phone, then if your phone is locked, if your phone is securely locked, then even if a criminal gets a hold of the phone, they can't actually use that to authenticate themselves. Whereas the, the changing of your number has become, unfortunately, too easy. Ah, interesting. So I'm going to pivot a little bit. Um, obviously, we've talked about law enforcement a bit, and a lot of the book is about a, a more modern approach to law enforcement. What do you mean by that? What does that look like, law enforcement in the digital age? So uh, there was an interesting article in the Times quite recently where they talked about a policeman, a police chief investigating the opiate crisis. And what the police chief finally realized is that they needed to look at um, how the opiates were being sold. And that meant looking online, but trying to get at the root of the problem. We have seen a lot of criminal activity move online. A good example is credit card. Uh, when credit card uh, were authenticated through the magnetic strip at the, on, the, on, the, on the card, you had a lot of in-person uh, use of, of fake credit cards. But once you got to move to chip and pin, uh, it's hard to duplicate a credit card. So instead, credit card fraud has moved to online, where there is no chip and pin, and then the uh, uh, right. the criminal orders stuff, gets <laughs> it sent, and, and does whatever they do. Um, police have not moved to the digital age in the way that they should have. They, they, they don't have the capabilities. They don't have the under technical understanding. Now, we can't train all the policemen in the United States or all the policemen in the world to be able to do this. What we need to do, <coughs> excuse me, what we need to do is uh, enable transference of knowledge, probably from the federal government, probably from the FBI. It doesn't mean taking over jurisdiction, but it means sharing information. And you mentioned a bit the end. <coughs> 
sorry. No, of course. And you mentioned about the NSA. Does the NSA, you know, are they a model on some levels? I mean, they've been vilified a little bit by folks, but are some of their approaches to uh, intelligence a model that could be used by law enforcement? Well, the NSA uses very different techniques. They're collecting intelligence rather than uh, prosecuting cases. Uh, So, for example, communications metadata, where somebody is, who they connect to, and so on, is often much more useful to them than it is to to law enforcement. Uh, Everything in law enforcement has to be collected under a warrant. It has to be collected under probable cause. Well, not everything. You can collect... uh, Uh, with a subpoena if it's pertaining to an ongoing investigation. But uh, national security doesn't operate under the same rules. What they have done is remarkably honed their capabilities to get at information. They've done that over the last 20 years as as communications around the world, especially the communications they were interested in, became encrypted, they had to go to other methods of, of doing their types of investigations. Law enforcement didn't make that same transition, and there are a number of reasons, including uh, what people have called the golden age of surveillance. Um, the fact that phones were for a long time easy to open, and in fact, often criminals still open phones for, for right. police and the fact that communications weren't encrypted and that we communicate much more than we did 20 years ago. As we've shifted away from that to encrypted communications and even more so to locked phones, police have complained and, and, and raised serious issues about their ability to get at evidence, but part of that problem is we didn't do the shift for law enforcement in uh, at the same time that, that NSA was doing its shift, for example. That's great. So. One of the the bigger takeaways I also uh, have from your book is that everyone really needs to care about encryption. And you kind of, you know, at the end of your talk, focused on civil society. And I wasn't quite sure where you were going with it as you started to put the names up there, Planned Parenthood and Southern Poverty Law Center. But then you quickly explained why they could easily be the victims of pretty malicious attacks. Go into that a bit and why, you know, civil society, it could be so damaging to them uh, if they're not secure. So one of the takeaways from the Office of Director of National Intelligence report in January 2017 was that the Russians went after think tanks and other groups that affect uh, U.S. public policy. And we know from studying the history of the Soviets um, that they have tried in previous times in in 1917 in Russia and successfully done in Russia and then again in the Soviet satellite states after the Second World War a destruction of civil society. Civil society serves many functions. It serves to smooth over disputes uh, among the public when there are divisive issues, but it also serves as a way to connect the legislators with the public. It explains what issues are really happening in legislation, and and it transmits to legislators what people feel about issues. Some organizations like the Southern Poverty Law Center or Planned Parenthood have already been the attacks of certain groups within the United States, and I'm sure they've secured their electronic systems. But securing your electronic system against a an attack from within the United States that is going to come at one level and an attack from a nation state that is very sophisticated and very capable is a very different thing. If you think about uh, Greenpeace, which was the subject of attacks by the French government 20 years ago, mm-hmm. um, or Sierra Club, or, um, well, let me, let me just take Greenpeace or Sierra Club, people who object to their environmental messages or who want to disrupt politics in in parts of the country like the West, 
uh, might use disrupting, let me, let me back off and try again. Um, so if you take organizations like Greenpeace or Sierra Club, there, there are issues that they push about environmental issues. There, let me try one more time. If, if you take Greenpeace or Sierra Club and the environmental issues that they're concerned with and the reports that they issue, the public statements they make, if an enemy state were to go in and muck with their email or print their email or change their reports, uh, what's the matter with printing their email? We all know when we converse uh, that we're jocular. We say things that are flippant. Those look very different when somebody else reads them. Absolutely. I mean, Sony is a great example of this, right? That's right. That's right. The emails where, where people were saying fairly rude things about other uh, producers, about uh, actresses and actors, about President Obama. Yeah. Uh, things that they would never have wanted to be said in public, and then all they were, all of a sudden, they were out in print. But if you take those organizations and those comments, and you publish them, or you tweak the reports a little, uh, then all of a sudden, those those organizations look less good to the public. Absolutely. They stop serving the function that is so important in a democracy. Yeah, no, uh, the scary. same thing could happen for the American Cancer Society, or or any other organization that produces scientific reports that help guide public policy. And it's a very dangerous situation because the Russians are clearly interested in subverting, disrupting U.S. civil society. And doing so in a very savvy way, it seems. So as a, you know, we're a small nonprofit here in the think tank space, what should we do? What, 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 you know, how do I feel not helpless in this space? And so I'll ask you that from kind of an organizational level, because you, you do need to think through that, and then maybe an individual level. What are some small steps that we can as individuals do? So I am really impressed with uh, Citizen Lab in Toronto, which not only produces reports about surveillance and active surveillance efforts against human rights workers, against journalists, and so on, but they've also put up a site, and I, I don't remember the URL, but you can find I'll it find later. I'll find it. <laughs> um, uh, they've put up a site that suggests how you secure your systems, and they ask you, you know, what systems are you trying to secure? Is it a laptop? Is it a phone? Is it an, an iPad? Is it what operating system are you using? what kind of attacks might you expect, what kind of job do you do, and they have promised to keep it up to date. That's great. Uh, which is a wonderful resource. Yeah. So that's something that everybody in your organization should do. I think educating the public to understand what the threats are, because the threats have changed, is a very valuable thing to do, and doing that via blog posts, but also doing it in more public ways, op-eds and so on, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Talking to staffers so that congressional staffers, so that they understand the issues have changed in the last few years. And we're really talking about protecting a much wider swath of society is, is quite important to do. That would be a very good start. So last question, you know, if someone, you know, unfortunately doesn't read your book, although you all should buy it on Amazon or your local bookstore, and it's a beautiful cover, what's the thing that they should take away? What's the top level that they should get from this? Um, that Encryption is for everybody. That securing yourself, protecting yourself, it's not just about privacy, but it's about security. That's wonderful. Susan Landau, thank you so much for joining. Her book is Listening In, Cybersecurity in an Insecure Age. Is that right? Yes, Insecure Age. Thank you so much for joining us, Susan. Thanks very much for having me. That's it for this episode of Tech Talk. For the very latest on what CDT is doing to shape a vibrant digital future, follow us on Twitter, 
like us on Facebook, or visit cdt.org. I'm Brian Wazolowski. Thanks for listening.